Thank you, James. <clears throat> Thank you, Andy, for reading. Please keep that passage open um, as we prepare to look at it. Um, a bit like last week's passage, it's, it's a lot in there. Um, I'm not going to go through absolutely everything in detail, so if there's something that uh, I don't touch on, uh, feel free to come up to me afterwards and, um, and ask me about it or talk about it. Uh, but let's pray as we prepare to look at God's Word. Loving Heavenly Father, we pray right now that you would give us ears to hear your word. Pray that you would give us hearts to believe it and the wills to put it into practice through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I wonder if anyone here uh, knows who this person is. This is actually a self-portrait. The man who drew this self-portrait is also responsible for this artwork. And he's also responsible, most famously, for this artwork. Who is it? It is Leonardo da Vinci. That's right. Famous artists from the Renaissance period, that period of great artistic and cultural and scientific rebirth in Europe in the 15th and 16th century. And as we know, we can tell from reputation and looking at these artworks, da Vinci was a great artist. But here's the thing about da Vinci, he was also supremely gifted in the fields of science and music and invention and writing. And he wasn't the only one in the Renaissance period like this. Da Vinci and contemporaries like him gave rise to the idea of the Renaissance man. You may have heard that term, it still exists today. Uh, Someone who possesses gifts across a broad range of disciplines and can boast skills in all manner of things. Uh, It's perhaps best summed up in the thinking of uh, one of the men of this time, a guy called Leon Alberti, who said, a man can do all things if he will. He can do all things if he will. That is, humans are self-determining. Where there's a will, there's a way. And this ideal of the Renaissance man, it was driven by the Renaissance idea that, get this, man is at the centre of the universe. Man is at the centre of the universe, limitless in his capacities for development and for self-improvement and for success. And even though we live hundreds of years after the Renaissance, that is an ideal that we continue to embrace and to celebrate. We naturally admire impressive people, accomplished people. The quintessential Renaissance man was nothing if not successful in their lives. I think the modern-day Renaissance men and women are the self-made people whose lives are nothing but successful, really, characterised by ease and success, masters of their own destiny. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Master of your own destiny? It's quite a tidy boast. I can do all things I will. Look at what I've achieved. Of course, the question for us this evening as we sit here is, how does that compare with what we might call the life of Christian discipleship. That is a life that most of us here, if not all, are engaged in. And as we turn to this passage from 2 Corinthians, a passage that's really the climax of the whole letter, we see that the subjects of success and boasting are central to the passage. And that's because Paul is talking about what a strong and successful life of Christian discipleship, and in particular, Christian leadership and ministry, what that ought to look like. Should it look like the life of a, of a first century Renaissance man, characterised by worldly success? Does it look like that? And I think as Christian believers, 
and as a church living in 21st century Sydney, a culture that is every bit as obsessed with achieving self-determined success and the good life, I think this is a question we very much need to consider. That is the air that we breathe. That is the water in which we swim. We can just take these assumptions on for granted. So how does Paul go about helping his his readers consider this? How does he go about helping us consider this? Well, primarily, as he often does, as he's done throughout this whole letter, he uses himself, particularly his life and ministry, as an example. Or rather, as a counterexample to the ones that have so captured the hearts and minds of the Corinthian church, the example of the super apostles. And this passage, it has a something of a repeated three-part structure. There's the, sec- the end part of chapter 11 and then chapter 12. And in each of those sections, there are these three parts to them. Paul outlines his need to boast. It's something he has to do. But as you may have guessed from reading, and especially from the way Andy read it, which was fantastic, he really, particularly in that chapter 11 section, he really is not doing so straight. He is ironic. He's to the point of sarcastic. But he's saying, I need to boast. And then he goes on to what I call a Corinthian boast, the sort of boast that the the Corinthians love, that they might say, amen, brother, to. And then finally, he goes on to his actual boast, what he actually is really proud of and wants the Corinthians to take away and to notice. So that's repeated in chapter 12. And I think the reason he structures it this way is because you'll see the first half in chapter 11, he's really talking about ministry and religious credentials and addressing that. And then in the second half, he's talking about spiritual credentials. It's a way of saying these are two sides of the one coin. This is the scope of what it means to live as a Christian disciple, to live as a Christian leader. So let's examine them. And so let's start then. Let's look at Paul's foolish need to boast. He says in verse 16, I repeat, no one should consider me a fool. But if you do, at least accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. See, in Paul's estimation, the plight of the Corinthian church was severe. And at the heart of it was boasting. Now, boasting was just a way of life in first century Greco-Roman society. In the pagan worldview, there was no real hope in a blessed afterlife. So it was either glory now or glory never. So if you could boast, you did boast. And that whole culture of boasting meant that unless you boasted, people didn't take you seriously. You weren't someone legitimate, someone worth listening to, someone worth following. And the super apostles who had come in and taken over the Corinthian church had brought that message in with them. And the Corinthian church had bought into it. They had bought into a gospel that judged Christian believers and especially Christian church leaders by outwardly impressive human standards alone. In this gospel, there was nothing wrong with boasting. It's natural. And anyone who didn't fit this particular standard, they were judged a fool. That's what we've seen Paul's had to deal with throughout this letter and what he addresses head on here, that they see him as a fool. But how had this worked out for the Corinthians? What had this standard led to? Look at me in verse 20. He writes, You put up with it if someone enslaves you, if someone devours you, if someone captures you, if someone dominates you, or if someone hits you in the face. I say this to our shame. We have been weak. In 1938, four countries, Germany, Great Britain, France and Italy, they signed what's known as the Munich Accord. 
It was an agreement that allowed Germany to keep the part of Czechoslovakia that they had already invaded and taken over on the condition that they take over no more of Czechoslovakia. But the thing about the Munich Accord is that it's also referred to as the Munich Betrayal. So the British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, he returned home to overjoyed, welcoming crowds, relieved that the threat of war had passed, and Chamberlain infamously told the press and the British public that he had achieved peace with honour. I believe it is peace for our time. How long did that peace last? Not a year later, Hitler took over the rest of Czechoslovakia and Great Britain was plunged into war with the rest of Europe and before long, the rest of the world. The Corinthians have made their own Munich Accord with these false teachers, buying into their boasting and promise of spiritual power, but in the end, they've just become enslaved. They've, they've signed away their spiritual freedom and it's going to head them down a path of destruction if it heads them away from Jesus and relying on him. And they need to realise this. And so to point out their folly, to get his message across to these captivated Corinthians, Paul needs to boast. And so he does in more ways than one. Language drenched in irony, almost sarcastic. It leaves no doubt what Paul really thinks. This boasting is what's truly foolish. He shouldn't need to do it. But he does. He uses this same language of needing to boast when he gets to the second section, the repeated part, the repeated pattern of his passage in 12 verse 1. He says boasting is necessary. That's how the Corinthians are going to hear him. Even though he, in his own view of things, is talking like a madman, that seems to be the only way they're going to understand him, the only way he's going to get through to them. It's the only way he's going to be able to set them free from the treacherous boasts of the super apostles. So Paul engages in this foolish boasting and he does that he goes on to boast he moves on to his corinthian boasting he lays out you see that in verse 22 these impeccable jewish credentials he says are they hebrews so am i are they israelites so am i are they the seed of abraham so am i and apparently this was something that impressed the corinthians presumably because the super apostles had made similar claims. Why had the super apostles done this? Well, probably because they rightly discerned that if they could, could go back to the Jewish Messiah and make a direct link between Jesus and, and him and themselves on the, on the basis of their, his Jewishness, well, then they probably have a great deal of credibility. But Paul says, if being ultra-Jewish is what you need in your true apostle, then don't worry, I have got that covered in ethnicity, in spiritual heritage, in training, I am as Jewish as they come. And the same reasoning lies behind Paul's spiritual boast in chapter 12. Read in verse 2 there. I know a man in Christ who was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. He's speaking about himself even though it's in the third person. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise. He heard inexpressible words which a man is not allowed to speak. This is a legitimate spiritual revelation that Paul personally received and almost literally out of this world experience. Now it's not clear what the third heaven that Paul refers to is, the paradise that he speaks of. Was he bodily taken into the presence of God himself? 
or just given a vision, like the Apostle John, exiled on the island of Patmos, the vision that became what we now refer to as the book of Revelation. Is that what happened? We don't know. Paul himself doesn't know. Only God knows, he says. Either way, this happened to me. And relating this experience to the Corinthians, that would have resonated well with them. See, they were big on spiritual ecstatic experiences as signs of God's power was upon a person. All you have to do is read 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13 and 14 to see their obsession with this. And these seem to have been part of the boasts of the super apostles too. In addition to claiming impeccable Jewish pedigree, they claimed that they were the recipients of all manner of incredible spiritual experiences, the sort of experiences one only truly blessed and empowered by God would receive. The Corinthians had bought it. So Paul says, you want your apostle to have an amazing spiritual pedigree as well? I've got that too. I can boast in that. And he does. But he doesn't end there. He doesn't end in his Corinthian boasting. He goes on to boast about much more profound things. Verse 23. We read, Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one. As you'll notice, that just follows on from him talking about his Jewish credentials. You can imagine the Corinthian readers or, or, or listeners to this letter as it was being read, read out, hearing that and just anticipating Paul going on in that similar vein of genuine boasting. But then Paul does a, does a switcheroo on them, doesn't he? If talking about his Jewish credentials and spiritual experience was, was his Corinthian boasting, then this is his actual boasting, what he really wants them to take notice of. He says he is a better servant of Christ than these super apostles. You can imagine the Corinthian readers. Wow, what does this better service of Christ look like, Paul? It looks like far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, near death many times. You can imagine the Corinthian readers. Wait, what? What does it look like? Did I hear that right? Did I read that correctly? It looks like multiple painful whippings from Jewish authorities. Yeah. It looks like beatings from Roman authorities. It looks like, we'll just read the rest of verses 22 to 23. It looks like that. And Paul's unspoken question to his readers is, have the super apostles experienced anything like this? And his unspoken answer is, of, of course not. Why not? Because their version of, of apostleship is entirely self centered it's limited to personal comfort to personal gain to personal fame by contrast paul says in verse 30 if boasting is necessary i will boast about my weakness and so he does he relates there in verses 31 to 33 the humiliating account of how he had to be lowered in a basket out of a window to evade arrest Talk about a picture of helplessness. Paul didn't rappel down the side of the city wall to a, in a heroic escape of the Damascus authorities, like a scene from some action movie. He was a grown man in a basket, legs and arms hanging over the side probably, utterly in need of the assistance of others, utterly in need of the strength of others. This is the reality of Paul's ministry experience as an apostle of Jesus. It's hard and it's thankless and it's characterized by hardships that are completely out of his control. 
The same goes for the reality of Paul's spiritual experience. Yes, he was taken up into the third heaven, into paradise, and given by God some amazing revelation a decade and a half earlier. But God also gave him something else. Verse 7. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. Amazing revelations from God. A messenger from Satan to torment me. What could possibly be the purpose of that? What would God be doing there? Well, for the benefit of the Corinthians and to our great benefit, God gave Paul insight into why that happened. Whatever this affliction was, whether this thorn, this messenger of Satan was a person or an ailment or a circumstance, whatever it was, Paul recognises that in his case at least, it was ultimately for his own spiritual good. What does he say? To keep him from exalting himself, to keep him from becoming conceited, to keep, keep him from becoming big-headed, the great missionary apostle Paul. And I think we, those of us here who are Christian believers, those of us here who are Bible readers and familiar with the New Testament and the writings, uh, the life and times of Paul, I think we can often think of Paul as some sort of ministry renaissance man. Impressive, successful, supremely godly. But that's not how Paul saw himself. Paul's weakness boasting, it, it indicates an understanding of apostleship and of the Christian life that is decidedly not self-determined. Not self-determined. Paul knows that he is not the master of his own destiny. If it were within his power, Paul wouldn't choose any of the things he's just described. He would not choose the list of hardships we read in chapter 11. He would not choose the thorn that torments him. And we know that in particular because of what Paul goes on to say about that thorn in verse 8, don't we? Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me. Paul didn't want it. He wasn't in control over it, otherwise he would have removed it himself. Nor did it seem that Paul instantly endured it stoically or instantly was able to identify it as a spiritual aid for his growth and maturity. Ah, this thorn, this is to help me from becoming exalted. That dares, I dare say that came later. No, what does he do? He pleaded with Jesus that it be removed. Three times he did. Who knows what Paul was going through in the midst of that torment? He may have been angry. I dare say at times he was. He may have been tempted to rail at God. I dare say at times he probably did. Look at all my devoted service to you and this is what I get? This torment? In the season two finale of the American political drama, The West Wing, President Bartlett loses a close friend in a tragic car accident. And after the funeral, he's alone in the church, National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., and he's mad. He is mad at God. His character is a devout Catholic, and he starts railing at God. He begins in English, but being something of a Renaissance man himself, he then goes on to rail at God in Latin. And obviously, there's no translation provided in the episode itself, but you, you don't need it. You can tell what he's saying by the way it's acted, by the way the lines are delivered. He is blaming God. He is angry with God. But someone somewhere has actually translated what the president says in that scene. 
And this is what the devoutly Catholic president says to God, whom he holds responsible for the tragic loss of his close friend. He says this, I give thanks to you, O Lord. Am I to believe these things are from a righteous God, a just God, a wise God? To hell with your punishments. I was your servant here on earth and I spread your word and did your work. To hell with your punishments and to hell with you. Have you ever felt like saying that to God? Maybe not in language that extreme. But some version of that. Perhaps you have actually said words to that effect or felt things to that effect. Maybe there has been a thorn in your side. Maybe there's a thorn in your side right now. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a financial burden. And you just want some relief. Some relief from a God who claims to be in control. Some relief from a God who claims to love and care for you. Relief from a Lord who promised that he will be with you until the very end of the age. Where is that relief? Where is God in the midst of such crushing weakness? I dare say, in the midst of his torment, Paul wondered just these things. Those very honest, very human responses, they weren't beneath him, nor should they be. They're not beneath any of us. That is how we experience suffering as humans in this world. And yet, as Paul's experience continued, we discover that he received an answer that, while undoubtedly difficult to hear on one level, was ultimately of even greater comfort than the removal of his fleshly torment. And it's perhaps here, in Jesus' answer to Paul's plea, and in Paul's response to that answer, that we see with the greatest clarity that strength in weakness really is the true power of gospel living and gospel ministry. Why? Because it really is the true power of the gospel. Paul boasts in his weakness Because he knows that the course of his life and ministry, the ups, the downs, the good, the bad, the hallelujahs and the hardships, they are not ultimately determined by him. They're determined by the God who is not only in control because he's God, but who in the cross of Christ has already acted powerfully on Paul's behalf and in Paul's best and most needed interest. He has dealt with his sin and secured his future. And that is why Jesus' answer in verse 9, it's not a mere platitude for Paul. It is a true comfort to him. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. The grace Jesus speaks of is on one level personal favour. Christ's ongoing and abiding presence will enable Paul to endure this thorn. But it's also not you know, an abstract and general experience of Christ's favour. Where is it found first and foremost? It is found first and foremost in Christ's work on the cross. See, Jesus speaks to Paul as the one who himself was crucified in weakness, but who lives by the power of God, as Paul himself will put it in the very next chapter. See, Jesus' answer contains within itself the wonder of his own suffering and deliverance. See, Jesus, he was probably, he's the only one who truly was a true Renaissance man. The one person who truly was at the centre of the universe. Who truly could do all things if he will. 
He created the universe. What power? How did he go on to use that power? How did he go on to use that power in relation to the human beings that he had created as the eternal son of God? How did he define strength? By becoming weak, by taking on human form, the form of his creation, and then by submitting himself to the death of his creation. The eternal son of God should never have been subjected to that. And death on behalf of his creation, a death that involved complete humiliation and bowing to the will of others. It's why the the prophet Isaiah, speaking of Jesus many years before he came, described him as a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. That is the Jesus who answers Paul in his moment of desperation. But it was through that very humiliation and helplessness that Jesus overcame the power of sin, that he broke the power of death that had wreaked havoc in the world, in human relations with one another, in human relationship with God. And so Jesus and the cross, that's the ultimate expression of strength and weakness. And where is Jesus now? He's resurrected. He's ascended. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He continues to rule the world and he will one day come back to bring in the new creation. All of this is a reminder that earthly comfort is itself only temporary. And there's little point in receiving earthly comfort if spiritually you remain separated from God in rebellious sin. That's not Paul's fate. And that's why Paul can say in verse 10, so I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions and impressions because of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A well-known thing through a significant period of struggle, suffering, wrote this. He said, I have learned to kiss the wave that dashes me against the rock of ages. That's understanding where you are in relation to God, but also understanding what God has done to bring you into relation with himself. Paul's relief from his thorn and his hope in the face of all the ups and downs of life and ministry, it comes not in the removal of the thorn, as great as that would have been, but in his relationship with Jesus. Jesus is who propels Paul's life forward from birth to new birth, from spiritual immaturity now to spiritual perfection in eternity. Power is perfected in weakness. Paul's no Christian Renaissance man. No one is. We are not at the centre of God's universe, nor in control of it. God is and God does. So then how should we think of ourselves? What should we aspire to be? How should we think of ourselves? I think we should think of ourselves like a sailboat. That's how we should think of ourselves. I did a lot of sailing when I was younger with my dad. And the thing about sailing is a sailboat just sits there without any wind. It has zero intrinsic strength to propel itself forward. A limp, weak canvas sail that in the absence of a breeze renders the boat utterly useless. But when the wind blows and catches the sail, the power the direction, the strength. You can go from from zero to 100, as it were, just like that. And where does the strength come from? It doesn't come from the boat itself. It comes from the wind. 
And so the boat experiences the strength and power on the wind, of the wind as, a, as it relies completely on the wind. That is what the true power of gospel living and ministry is like. That's what it looks like to have strength in weakness. It looks, looks like being a sailboat. The true strength of Christian discipleship, what propels us forward in life and ministry, it's not found in our impeccable Christian credentials and spiritual experiences. And as we bring this to a, a close, that is just worth pondering because it's so easy for us to get caught up in. Even taking aside all the things outside Christian-specific living. You know, we can be so concerned with, I don't know, where our minister went to college or how big and fast and impressive our church is growing or the, 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 the Christian pedigree of our family upbringing or how much we read the Bible, how much study we've done, how many things and ways that we serve at church. That is not what defines our Christian strength. That's not where we find it. It is found in our complete reliance upon Jesus' power. Past, present and future. Past at the cross. Present in his reigning, abiding presence with us. And future, new creation. So we can boast. But if we're going to boast, like Paul, let's boast in that. Let's boast in Jesus. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you that you show us what true strength is. Thank you that you made yourself weak so that you could break the power of sin and bring us into a right and fulfilling relationship with you. I pray that you may help us to rely fully on you. I pray for those of us in this room who themselves or, or family or friends are going through tough times experiencing the sort of hardships that Paul speaks of here. Lord, may you draw near to them. May you show them ways in which they should and can rely on you and that you are providing for them. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.